Sonic States. What's called? Uh, hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 91. Um, this is going, well, will be going live on Thursday, the 17th of July. Um, I'm joined this week by a small but perfectly formed team of uh, contributors. Uh, first up um, being Mark Tinley from sunny, well, I, I, I now know where you live because I saw you at the weekend, Huntingdon, which you is did, in Cambridgeshire. Yes. Um, and very uh, nice it was too to meet you. Yes, isn't it bizarre? We kind of were musing about the fact that this was at the Synth DIY co- um sort of show in uh, Robinson College in Cambridge, um, we actually arranged to meet up um, for the first time. And even though Mark probably started right, did a couple of articles for me, perhaps in 90, gosh, Nine, probably. 99 probably. So we actually have known of each other and have kind of communicated for 10 years, obviously more intensively recently, but we've never actually physically met. So did we I did. Not do the, the fourth ever article on Sonic State or something? It might have been the first or the second, yeah, it was. Did I? It was really right early on, wasn't it? Yep, it certainly was. And the was. weird thing is, I've been trying to rack my brains of how we actually got in contact with each other in the first place, and I can't remember. Well, um, you used so, to send out um, just kind of emails um, telling I? people what you were doing, and I happened to be one of them, and I have no idea why I was. Um, I oh. think that was it. Or um, I might have found you somewhere else, maybe. I can't remember door? now. Did you go on the door? That might have been it. It might have been something to do with a, a mailing list, but that's where it started. Logic Back in the day. <laughs> yes, could well have been, actually, but I forget now how exactly it happened, but I just yeah, remember ringing too. you up, and we, we, we bonded. Anyway, it was really me nice too. to meet you and the family. I had a lovely time. Uh, we'll talk about that perhaps um, in, a, in a minute. Let me just introduce the rest of my uh, my guests. But first, of course, the obligatory myspace.com forward slash Mark Tinley. Um, next up is Mr. Richard Hilton from Connecticut. Um, Richard Hilton can be found at myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. Rich, having a good week? Very good, thanks. And you? Uh, yeah, not so bad, actually. It's been, um, it's been raining a lot, but um, apart from that, it's been good fun. Been ah. good fun. Um, had a nice weekend, like I say, in Cambridge. Um, and let me just get Dave Spears from g4software.com in, who's also with us. Hello. Hello. Um, yes, uh, synth DIY. Uh, I know, Dave, I was trying to get you to come up, Dave, but you had a big family get-together. Um, but yeah, I drove up to, to Robinson College in Cambridge. I've never been to Cambridge before. Lovely place. Um, met Mr. Neil Johnson, who was the show organiser, and all these great people who uh, just came along and brought their kind of synth DIY projects. I've videoed a few things, um, which have been going up over the week, and also got to meet Mr. Mark Tinley there, and his uh, and his lovely wife and child, and also um, the guy who runs Matrix Synth, who's called Richard, and his wife and child. In fact, your children got on very well. When, you're, when you left, Matrix Synth's kid... Um, was in tears. She was oh, bereft. No. She was bereft. Oh dear! They were getting on so well, wasn't that sweet? So uh, I can. And next year is the tenth anniversary of um, Synth DIY UK. It's, it's a sort of international mailing list, and they have these kind of um, get-togethers all over the place. A few in America, in Germany, whatever, and uh, where people just bring all of their, you know, bring various projects they've been working on, stuff they built. So there were sort of dope for systems. There were some DSP-based systems. There was a beautiful Maplin 4600 modular, which I think you played on, didn't you, Mark? Uh, yes, I did. Um, that had been built by a chap called Alan Needham. I think there's a video up for that. There was also a load of Oakley modular stuff, which I'd, I've never come across it before. And it's sort of large format, module of the month module stuff. And that was kind of, there was tons of that. I got chatting with a man who had an AKS synthy, 
and Nick has one of those. And I said to him, why don't you have any of the um, the green pins for plugging into your matrix board? And he looked very shocked and said, green ones? And he didn't seem to know about the green ones. And I'm convinced that we've got green pins, which are either capacitors or diodes. So we had a very long conversation about the possibility of what these green pins could be. It was that kind of place, though, wasn't it? That's the sort of detail that it went into. I mean, uh, it was a bit beyond me at times, I must admit. I mean, uh, I'm not not really a maker or an electronics buff, but... uh, Jolly good fun was had by all, and we had a nice uh, night out on Friday night, and I felt a bit groggy the next day. But anyway, it was fun. I just want to say, if anyone from that's listening, hello, and thanks for putting up with me. I liked the E and M M Spectrum synthesizer. Oh, that was gorgeous, well, wasn't it? Because I've never seen one of those. Before. I couldn't find the bloke to do me a demo of that because I'd, I'd like to. Um, I'd like to have got that, but I'd, I'm afraid I didn't. There are a load of pictures. I'll put some links up in the show notes. But anyway, let's move on to our first topic because um, I've just been listening to this for quite some time and I've forgotten just how great it was. Slave to the Rhythm, Grace Jones, uh, produced by uh, Trevor Horn. And uh, I was listening to it today because basically there was a new, there's a new album out by Grace Jones. And there's a teaser. Um, one of our reporters put up uh, a link to uh, the video, which is the sort of the first track. Um, it's a new album by Grace Jones, and she hasn't sort of done a record for quite some time. It's called, the, the album's going to be called Corporate Cannibal, and it's going to be out in September. Eight tracks. It's going to have Sly and Robbie on it. Brian Eno, Wally Badaru, Tricky, Barry Reynolds, John Justin, Martin Slattery, Philip Shepard, Don E, Tony Allen. There's kind of a bit of a bit of a kind of, well, I don't know, a, a sort of get-together of some of the great and good within the music. And you're not anything to do with it, Rich. You, you, you're bound to have a, something to do with it, aren't you? Uh, no. Not this time. Uh, she, last time I saw Grace Jones, she showed up at a show she played at Wembley Arena. Uh, I guess it was around 2003, 2002. Came out on stage, snuck up behind Nile Rodgers and grabbed him from behind by the by the chest, I'll say. Right. <laughs> and then stayed on stage through good times. Ah. The one, one and only time I've met Grace Jones. She's a very interesting character because I just remember when I was kind of working in restaurants as a kid, you know, coming up through my teens and early 20s, it was everywhere. And it was the most sort of groovy and brilliant music that I, I'd ever heard, I seem to remember. And I just thought, well, it's worth a bit of a chat about this and I, i'm i'm sure dave spears you must have been were you a fan at all massive were you massive. oh i'm I so thought, glad you said that her version of private lives which was the, was the pretenders wasn't it yes i thought it was absolutely superb and that whole warm leather album with sly and robbie was brilliant and then when she hit with slaves to the rhythm that was for me a fantastic fantastic album production a pinnacle of production. I, I have to agree. I was listening. I downloaded it today off YouTube, uh, off um, iTunes, because the YouTube versions were all had glitches in them, and I wanted to play something that was a bit more pristine. And it just, I was, I'm looking at the waveform now, and one of the things about that, I mean, just on that that level, the waveform to that track I just played, 
is not a tube of toothpaste. You can see every single drum hit poking out by quite a long way from the sort of body of the music. It's all old school, non-normalised and so dynamic. And listening to all the individual tracks on it, there's just a ton of influence on there. You know, you, you think um, The Orb, Little Fluffy Clouds, that uh, thing they did with Ricky Lee Jones, that sounds like one of the tracks of, um, of Grace Jones. It's just really ambient as well. I mean, it was quite experimental, but also incredibly groovy and poppy. I mean, I don't know, uh, Mark, I don't know if you, it was your cup of tea, but uh, you surely must... Um, no, must it was. Have, it uh, definitely was. A fantastic production. Love it. I could, didn't know who was playing on it. I knew um, it's Louis Jardin was percussionist, wasn't he? Because he was uh, sort of the main man. Is that right? Oh, mate, my old mate, JJ Bell. What, played percussion? He played guitar, and Louis got him in on the gig. Actually, it's a brilliant story. Um, sadly, JJ's no longer with us, but he um, was somebody I played with in the kind of very early 80s, or mid-80s, and whereas my career went on to um, tumultuous nothingness, really, I would pick up various <laughs> albums, and JJ would always appear on these albums, and it was like, oh, blimey, you know, how did he do it? I mean, he was a phenomenal little guitarist. And I met him years and years later, and I said to him, you know, God, it made me sick during the late 80s. You know, I'd pick up Pet Shop Boys, in particular, Slave to the Rhythm, and I think the Frankie stuff, and I'd see your name on it all the time. And he said, well, actually, what happened was he was very good mates with Louis, and Louis got him into um, Trevor's place in London, and Trevor wanted a guitarist who could play like Hendrix, which JJ really wasn't. So uh, JJ kind of went, you know, well, I could kind of do with the work. And uh, so he starts playing in the control room. And every time he started playing, he said, Trevor just walked out. So JJ thought this was a really bad sign. So he walked out at one point. He thought, you know, I've got to have a break. So he went out to Louis, who was in the, you know, in the kitchen area. And he said, oh, man, it's going really badly. You know, every time I start playing anything, Trevor just walks out. You know, maybe I should just kind of quit now. And Louis said, dude... Every time you play, he walks out here and goes, that guy's brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> what a great story. <laughs> I can't believe that I know someone who knows someone who actually played on that record. Because to me, I haven't listened to Slave to the Rhythm for a very long time. And I, every single keyboard riff, drum fill, bass bit, whatever, is just ingrained on my memory. And I'd forgotten how much I must have loved it. I mean, everything about it was just brilliant. I mean, it's quite interesting because Trevor Horn obviously just rode the zeitgeist because really it's a go-go track, isn't it? It's a go-go rhythm. It's kind of like, uh, what was that guy? Um, Chuck. Chuck Brown. Chuck Brown. It was, it's like that, you know, in Trouble Funk. But, and that was all happening at kind of an underground kind of level at warehouse parties or what have you when Slave to the Rhythm came out. And he just turned it into this amazing piece of production, which... Like I say, the mix on it is superb. I mean, nothing... You, you're so conscious of the dynamics. Apart from the guitars, are obviously, really compressed and really, you know, really kind of contained. But the vocal, all the other stuff is just breathing around this rhythm. It's just a masterpiece of mixing. And considering the technology that must have been around at the time as well. I've just made another discovery here as well. Uh, Tessa Niles is on it as background vocalist, ah. who I've worked with. Right. Oh, brilliant. And Richard Niles, her now ex-husband, is a really fantastic string arranger. He's on there as well. Right. I mean, who was, who was the drummer? Who was the drummer? I got to know because he was just, that's so groovy. Well, a lot of it was programmed, wasn't it? And then Louis just played hi-hats and stuff over the top. I mean, that was no, a No, really? A lot of that album was 
was basically a kind of Synclavier showcase. No, I'm so disappointed. Well, they did such a good job because I thought it sounded like a drummer. I have to say that when, uh, as soon as I got my JD800, the very first sound I programmed was that JX10, that chord intro. That was the very first sound I programmed. And there's lots of people uh, credited for playing percussion on it. Yeah, there's a lot of percussion on it. Andy Richards, drums and keyboards, it says here. So he's a programmer, isn't he, Andy Richards? No idea. Rich Hilton, did it kind of... How did it do in the States? I can't remember. Was it a worldwide mega smash or was it really a UK thing? I believe it did very well. It completely and utterly passed me by, but I believe it did very well. It's worth listening to because it's got some brilliant stuff on it. And you can, like I say, you can hear all these influences and just think, wow, this stuff kind of influenced m- more dance music and stuff later on. You know, you can definitely hear it in there. And it's, it is a brilliant showcase, showcase of Trevor Horn's production because essentially it's one song and a load of riffs. <laughs> I mean, really, and it's a whole album's worth. And a ton of panning. Yeah. I love that bit where you get that over one speaker and then all of a sudden that snare just comes in and blows everything. I used to play in my car just full blast all the time. In fact, when you were playing that intro earlier, I was air drumming here. It's that infectious. Wait wait till we start to do the live video broadcast, say, Dave. You can air (laughs) drum. We can see you air drumming. The next album was done by Nile, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Really? What's that called? Uh, it was called Inside Story. Right, okay. I, 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 her later works passed me by. I mean, that's the last one I, I kind of recall being being aware of. I didn't realise. Did Was that before your time, Rich? It was before my time with Niall, and uh-huh. uh, if I've ever heard it, I only heard it once, and it would have been t- over 20 years ago. But this new album, um, did you have a listen to the video, Corporate Cannibal? Good. I, 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 did, I, I, I thought it was pretty good, actually. I can play you a little bit of it. Let's just, because, oh, why ever not? Right, the way. I can't let it unplay. Eating the tray for me. I can't get enough prey. A man eating the tray for me. got a kind of um you can definitely hear the sly and robbie in there i, I can't wait till it comes out <laughs> maybe i'm just a sad old git but it sounded quite good to me and there's quite a lot of tricky in there as well and i think tricky had something to do with it because it's got that really sort of soupy kind of programmed feel as well which um just this track I can't, I can't wait for it to come out it's coming out in september corporate cannibal did you know that for instance that grace jones received a lifetime ban from disney parks for flashing her breasts <laughs> Sounds about right. I said earlier she's 60, obviously, which uh, is kind of hard to believe. And th- there was a brilliant piece of writing on the... Because uh, she played at Meltdown, which was kind of organised by Massive Attack in June. Apparently she came on 30 minutes late. During the second song of the, lo- her, the night, uh, Private Life, she disappeared for five minutes behind a speaker, but carried on singing. Uh, <laughs> and then when they, um, she had a sort of pull up to my bumper and sort of got loads of people on stage, and uh, so a girl grabbed her fr- from behind around her waist... And uh, Grace Jones pulled herself free and said, I could put you down. And uh, nothing ha- nobody grabbed her again. By the time of her second encore, Grace Jones was barefoot, wearing a mask and playing the cymbals for a sing-along version of Warm Leatherette. <laughs> I mean, uh, this is by Colin Patterson on the BBC website. And he said, there are a few 60-year-olds who could keep up with Jones. 
Sounds like she's still got what it takes to do live. I've never seen her live. I didn't really know. I thought her gigs were few and far between. Wally Badaroo, of course, um, did a lot of the keyboards, didn't he, on the, the classic album, which is just... That was when synth and keyboard riffs were kind of really quite prominent, weren't they? But it was organic stuff. It wasn't machinery. And uh, some of those some of those fantastic keyboard sounds that he got on um, on those on those early Grace Jones albums just really still you know massive influence on me and how I used to kind of play keyboards. Does it did, did do anything for anybody work with Wally? Does anyone know anything about Wally? Other than he was a Prophet Five dude. Yeah, Prophet Five dude. Uh, and I seem to remember something reading reading something a while back. Um, well, back in the day that he um, when the Yamaha DMP Seven digital mixers came out, he kind of paid someone loads and loads of money to write this application, which meant it could be voice activated. So he could sit in his chair and say, channel three, turn it up, 2DB, and it would sort of activate the over MIDI and, and work, you know, and so he could sort of get his com- talk to his computer and get That's it to mix cool. for him. Yeah, I, I couldn't find any more information about it. I do remember hearing something about it, you know, it must have been 20 years ago now, but um, sorry, this is sound, it is a bit of a, a Grace Jones love fest, but I think it's, it's worth it because um, it's, I'm excited and... Listening back, I'd forgotten just how great that stuff was. So anyway, let's move on to uh, the Nine Inch Nails story. Anyone see this one? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. This is great. This is uh, I'll, Basically, um, what they did is my, the Nine Inch Nails are playing a few gigs in a sort of select tour. And what they've done is they've got a Google feed of all the places that they're going to be playing. And then they started to add markers to the feed. So if you were watching the kind of Nine Inch Nails map, these markers would turn up on, you know, some sort of coordinate with, and it would say something like under a rock. And what it was, was essentially a treasure hunt. And under, you know, in these various locations, there would be a, a, t- a free ticket to, to one of the gigs. And so there was this sort of hysteria amongst Nine Inch Nails fans who seemed to be very kind of, uh, into Nine Inch Nails, obviously. And they were sort of driving around looking at, looking for all these tickets. And it was just a brilliant piece of marketing. What a great idea. Would you, how far would you go? Well, how far would I go to go and find Nine Inch Nails tickets? I probably wouldn't. I'd probably be fun, find though. somebody who so, who knew them and asked them for tickets. <laughs> 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 but um, I don't know. For tickets for something else that I really wanted to go to, I suppose I'd go to all sorts of lengths to get tickets to, I don't know, the, uh, the Great Dorset Steam Fair. <laughs> yeah. What a brilliant idea. I mean, it just seems like such a brilliant use of the internet for this kind of, like, digital treasure hunt. I've noticed that um, in the comments on the post on uh, the Los Angeles Times, there's some very, very upset fans who are very upset with these people for sort of uh, publicising it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Here's a question for you. Do you know what geocaching is? Uh, no idea, no. Okay, well, this is a game that me and my partner play sometimes, which is uh, we've got a GPS, yeah, and there's a site called geocaching.com. Right. Um, and you go to geocaching.com, and a cache is basically a stash of treasure, which, which is usually amounts to being like paper clips and pens and notepads and stuff like that. And you, you get the coordinates of the cache, and then you go out with your GPS and you try and find it. And there's a few near us, like little Tupperware tubs full of like bits of stationery and stuff. But people also put cars on there and large sums of money and all sorts of stuff goes up. And, you know, the first person to find it obviously gets the car or gets whatever. I mean, it's not just, you know, small stuff. There is big stuff on there as well. And that's 
like really quite good fun doing because you get close with the GPS and then you've got to try and figure out from the clues where the stuff's actually hidden. Oh, that sounds brilliant. I mean, if you think if you think about it, probably on this planet now, there's probably uh, tens of thousands of little Tupperware boxes with <laughs> pens and paper and paper clips and stuff in them. Within a five mile radius of us, there's about ten of them. So, really, so do, can you actually set your own up so you can say, right, you can write your own one and and, and submit yeah. it. And then the other thing that's in them is something called travel bugs. And a travel bug is generally either a soft toy or a little toy with a with a um, a barcoded tag on it, like mm. um, uh, a military tag yeah. with a number on it. And my son Brandon had a travel bug helicopter, which we put in to a cache which we made in London when I was living in London. And this thing went all around the world. It went to Australia, then it went off up to um, Alaska. And it basically did a whole circumnavigation of the world. And and at one point, I think it was the travel bug which had travelled the furthest out of all of them. Quite why anybody chose this helicopter to do it with, I don't know. But So they tend to turn up in the caches as well, These the travel bugs. It's great with kids. Fantastic game to play with your kids. You could also you could also organise a bunch of kind of, you know, giveaways of synths and software and all sorts of things, couldn't you? I mean, it would just be kind of quite a unique spin i wonder if uh, trent Reznor seems to be on the cutting edge of it again i wonder if it's him or whether he's got some smart people working for him because he always seems to come up with stuff that makes makes you think oh what a good idea probably him sonic talk sponsored by yamaha music production producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles accurate professional studio monitoring systems Incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos, the versatile motif range of music production synthesizers, and the latest N-Series digital mixing studios, featuring the cleanest signal path and full Cubase AI4 integration. www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Talk I guess we should talk about it, just because the 3G iPhone came out all over the, you know, I mean, you'd have to be kind of a hermit not to notice there's been another global launch of the latest iphone uh basically i think it came out thursday friday last week didn't it um one million sold within three days of launch in the uk only they reckon they're going to sell 14 million iphones next year but there was all sorts of collapses of the you know in the uk the uh, the the web-based retail system where you activate your phone collapsed and made it impossible to register and sell new handsets same stuff happened in with at&t in america and one of you but basically, it's starting to look like a good deal. It's now got 3G, because that was always one of the big problems with the iPhone, wasn't it? It just didn't have a very fast data connection, certainly for Europe. And 3G is the sort of prominent high-speed data stuff that you can get over. I say high-speed, it's still not that fast. It's, what, about 30k a second or something. 99 quid for the 8-gig uh, one. Uh, it's £35 a month for 18 months. You get 600 minutes a month of 500 minutes of, te- of text and unlimited data, which is actually sounds like quite a good deal to me. Anyone tempted? Well, I've broken all my Nokia phones now, and I'm down to my last one, um, which is a relatively old one. So I did ask them the other day if they could upgrade me to an iPhone, and this was the 3, three network. Yeah. And they yeah. said basically they don't have them yet. No. So he said although it's been although it's been released and everyone's talking about it and it's a three three G phone, yeah, they don't have it for some reason. Well O two are the only that's the thing that Apple have done. They've they've tied it to a specific provider in every territory. Different ones in every territory. In the UK it's O two. Dave Spears. Mm. 
no, I'm not going to get one. Because I know the minute I do, they're going to bring out a 5 megapixel camera version. Yeah, that's that's the killer for me. That is, I mean, and the fact that I've still got a year to run on my uh, on my contract and it would cost me a fortune. I don't know. But uh, it, I did have another look at it and it's just, it's, it's again, it's, I don't know how they do it. I know I've talked about it before, but you go and touch one and mess around with it and you just, you have this desire for it. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm not interested. It's like, oh, I really want to play with this some more. It's so appealing. What about you, Rich? I know you're not an iPhone guy, but uh, you must be hanging out with people who got iPhones and feeling a bit jealous, eh? From time to yeah. time. Yeah, I'd like to have one. They don't support, uh, they're not supported by the provider that I use. And yeah. uh, it would cost me a fortune because my whole family's in network on this provider so uh, that I'm using now. So it, it's just not reasonable for me to do. That's the thing. I think they've missed a trick here. I mean, I know that Apple were, I'm not quite sure they why they tied it in with single providers. I guess they got a premium and special deals and what have you, but they must be missing a trick because it's it's kind of like, they could be selling so many more if they opened it up, surely. Yeah, I would think. I, I guess it helps them in the promotional costs, at least. You know, because AT&T uh, in America has got to be a sponsor of all of that advertising, I would think. You also can download applications because they've opened up the application thing. I was looking on the iTunes side. There's not that many, although there is one where you can use it as your remote control for your iTunes library. And I was uh, pleased to see that Goldfrap was the uh, cover of the... <laughs> yeah, on the cover flow thing on there, which was kind of nice mm-hmm. for them, obviously. My son was using his iPod Touch to do that the other night. He was showing it to me. It was great. I was, yeah, I was thinking about getting an iPod Touch. Yeah, me but, too. I'm really thinking about it. Now that they've got a 32 gigabyte version, I'm really thinking about it. But it's kind of like I have to carry that and my phone. It just feels like I want it all together. But I don't, you know, that's the thing. That's, that's where they got me, you see. You see, they, uh, Apple launched a, a suit against that Psystar. What was that? It was a PC hardware that they kind of pre oh, right. pre hacked so that you could run OS X on it. But right. we looked at it, didn't we? And we didn't think yeah. it was actually that cost effective. It didn't seem like you were getting that good a deal. And now, but now Apple are, are after them, so that probably means that's the end of that. Three G iPhone worldwide launch. I think now, if you were going to buy one, you'd probably have, wouldn't have any trouble hooking it up. And whatever. I don't know what the battery life or any of those things are like in it, but it's still the camera for me. You know, the Nokia N ninety five has just got the best camera out there still by far, you know, for, certainly Mine for hasn't. video. No, well, yours <laughs> hasn't. I'm the only one of all the people I know who got a, a Nokia N95 that's, that still works. I haven't had any problems with mine yet, but um, maybe I will. That's interesting, though. So everyone else is as broken, is it? Well, Nokia no. stuffed me, basically. They said to me, oh, no, we're not going to fix it under warranty because it's got water damage. Yeah. And, and basically, the reason it's got water damage is because it's a slide phone, and if you so much as breathe on it, it gets condensation inside it, and then it goes slightly rusty, and they use that as an excuse not to mend it. Oh, uh, well. Never mind. SonicState.com Coffins. You want to talk about coffins? I loved that. That is the best topic that you've sent us yet, <laughs> I think. It's really? <laughs> that doesn't say much for my topic selection. This is Crazy Coffins. Crazycoffins.co.uk is basically a website um, where you can order sort of bespoke and custom unique caskets for your final resting place. And uh, they're run by a guy called Vic Fern and company who are a, a coffin maker of some repute. And um, I, saw this, I saw this in one of the Sunday papers and I thought, oh, this might be kind of fun. There was a Stratocaster. There was a Skip. Um, for a building contractor, a skip, for those of the Americans who don't know, is like a dumpster. Is that the same sort of thing? It's kind of unique 
Yeah. Would, it, would it be about right? And uh, the one I particularly liked was the Bride of Dracula coffin. I thought that was particularly good. So, Mark, seeing as you love this topic so much, what would you choose? If I was going to have a coffin, I would have to choose the barge because it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, I didn't see that one. There was a barge. <laughs> no, it's on the f- uh, first page, I oh, think. Fantastic. Um, although, I think when I uh, die, for want of a better word, I want to be, I would, I want to be burned in an open coffin so people can see me being burned to Melting. make absolutely damn bloody sure i'm dead <laughs> and then i want my ashes <laughs> scattered somewhere the thought of being buried alive is not uh, okay something i don't think i couldn't cope with that imagine waking up in the box underneath the ground oh <laughs> my god i suppose being burned in an open coffin kind of makes sure that you know if you're not if you're not dead you could sort of jump out and go god damn get out i'm hot yes. yeah i'm a, i'm still alive Rich, I, I don't want to dwell on, you know, morbid thoughts, but uh, I thought it might be fun. Did you have any, uh, have you had any ideas as to um, if you were to have a crazy coffin, what sort of crazy coffin would you have? I'm afraid, Nick, that I haven't got any kind of idea about any of this. Well, fair enough. Um, like, I'm, I, it's all kind of macabre and grisly to me. It's, it's funny. Weird. I mean, everybody has a different kind of a different take on the, this kind of stuff. I tend not to think about it too much. It's like people who say, if you, you know, would you like to know how you will be going when you finally go? And it's like, no, I don't want to know any of that stuff. You know, I want it to be a total surprise. <laughs> but yeah, yes. absolutely. Dave, Dave Spears. I quite like that um, wine bottle cork. I think that would be reasonably apt. That, yeah. I like the idea of full bodied. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> on the label, you mean? <laughs> well, that's what it says on the cork, full-bodied. Oh, brilliant. Well, anyway, that was just a, a quick a, a quick aside. But the, the kind of idea of crazy coffins and nice cases got me onto... This is the topic that I really enjoyed researching because I'm a luggage fiend. And this was nice cases. And the, uh, this was kind of basically from a... There was a... SKB have just released a little kind of watertight plastic case for six vocal mics at 64 bucks. And I just thought, well, what is it about luggage and our fascination with it? I mean, maybe I'm alone, but I, I suspect I'm not. And it really got me looking at all these other things. And I just couldn't help but gravitate towards the Pelican Cases website. And I spent mm-hmm. probably about two hours there last night <laughs> figuring out what I'd quite like from there. Rich, let's start with you. Are you a kind of, are you a luggage and casing kind of guy? Do you kind of delight in finding things that fit nicely into boxes or is it yeah, I, I, yeah, I do a bit. I, I do enjoy that. And uh, back when we used to move the Pro Tools rig around, and I used to bring a lot of hard drives, we had a Pelican case for the hard drives that was really beautiful and elegant, and you could throw the thing off the roof, and those drives would probably play. It was great. It was. I I do quite enjoy that, and I I kind of love my computer bag that I travel with too. So you know, I guess it's I funny, isn't it? It's such that. a weird. Is it weird or is it kind of? Is there something kind of inherently primeval about it? I don't know. I don't Did know. Lug- Did they have luggage back then? I don't know. <laughs> Some kind of bearskin pouch? I don't know. <laughs> I do make a big deal about buying luggage as well. I think, but I think once you've been on tour for a little while and you know you, it, your your life relies on that stuff getting to the next place on the plane or whatever, mm. you you have to buy expensive luggage and you have to have good cases. Otherwise, you know. It all spews out all over the place, and the, it, uh, that would be my worst nightmare, I think. Arrive in, you know, some city after a big, long 12-hour flight and see all your pants coming around the, uh, <laughs> the carousel or whatever. 
I mean, yeah. I, you know, I used to, I used to buy, and it's amazing how quickly you can destroy cases doing that intense traveling thing as well. My overhead locker bag was like this little thing on wheels with handles and stuff, and I just totally destroyed it in about three months flat. I don't know, Dave. Are you a luggage guy? Yeah, I do like this SKB stuff. I do like that. Um, yeah, I'm a bit more of a kind of laptop bag fetishist, I suppose. I've got one of those. You remember that silly rucksack thing I had, the bobble bee, which actually looks like a sort of bobsleigh on your back. Oh yeah, I always look. Looks like um, a baby carrier. Yeah. Yeah, I used to pretend that I'd lost my kid sometimes at airports. So I used to freak people out. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the other one I've got? That uh, oh, I'm just looking at it now. What's it called? Uh, it's a oh, the crumpler bags. I did. Yeah, I've got a crumpler bag. Thank yeah, you. So I go it. through kind of phases with stuff like this. SKB stuff's pretty essential, though, isn't it? I don't know. Do I'm not. I'm, should I look I at don't SKB? Think I'd put anything in an SKB rack and send it on the road. Well, actually, no, you said that. I did put something right. in an SKB rack and sent it on the road, and it got crushed and destroyed. Wow. So, so I don't trust those lightweight aluminium, you know, the things where you stick four units in or whatever. Oh, right, with yeah. The well, they're more for sort of giggers, aren't gigging musicians? Yeah, just kind of not for trucks. Not, not for trucks. Definitely not for the back of trucks. So mm-hmm. uh, do SKB do, um, do things like Pelican but cheaper? Uh, I don't know. I've used them on sort of video shoots and stuff like that. They've been pretty good with, you know, 50, 60 grand cameras. They seem to have coped Ooh, quite I might well. have to go and have a look at SKB as well. But Pelican, I was just in love. There's this thing called the 1510 LOC, which is a laptop overnight bag, which is basically a little wheelie thing, like our camera cases that we use at trade shows. Um, it's, a, it's sort of maximum size. It fits in overhead locker. You open it up, and the laptop and the gubbins for the laptop sit in the, the lid, and then underneath, you've got this kind of case area for clothes and stuff. But I would rip that out and put camera, a load of camera dividers and stuff in there. But they're very expensive. But I do like the look of them. Mm-hmm. Things about two two hundred bucks for the wheelie, which is I suppose is quite expensive, but not not as expensive as some of the soft camera cases that you can get the wheelie ones. Maybe they're it's just cheaper a- than a Halliburton, isn't it? What's a Halliburton? Those are the aluminium briefcases that, or aluminium briefcase style cases that all the tour managers seem to have oh uh, right okay those they ones cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars really they always look good when they're a bit beaten up those ones don't they yeah i've got a sort of i think do you think it's from uh, mission impossible <laughs> yeah, that maybe. sort of thing but it does when you turn up and you've got some nicely cased things and you take them all out it just sort of makes you feel like you're you no know, you're perhaps more prepared or you know you've got i don't know what it is about it it's like i feel you'll feel a bit james bondy or something I used to. Lo- I had this case that I built for our sequencing equipment, which was sort of our sequencing rack. And I used to love the fact that I'd got a rack-mounted keyboard in there and a rack-mounted monitor, and it looked like something from, you know, that that would come out of a fit twenty fathoms under the sea kind of film. It was really looked like a big submarine control panel. It was fantastic. So I think flight cases. I'm a bit. Uh, of a fetishist in that But they area are so, well. so, I mean, that, that's the sort of thing. The thing about those is they, re, you know, you can't, you can't really use them for anything else because they're so heavy and so kind of, you know, once you've sort of finished with them, they're sort of kind of next to useless, aren't they? Do you sell them back to somebody and they kind of reuse them? Because you always see bands turning up for, um, for production rehearsals with what looks like somebody else's flight cases. Oh. <laughs> is that how it works? I mean, I'm guessing that's what happens. I think it happens. does work a bit. I mean, my friend Hugh had the cla- one of the Clashes Road cases for years and years, and he's like a tech, and he'd got all his tech gear in there and stuff. 
and he ended up selling that on eBay from an absolute fortune because it was one of the original pink Clash road cases. So, I mean, I think they go round about, you know, round in circles, don't they? And I guess somebody buys them back from you. Yeah, Maybe yeah. a music bank or somebody probably store them and make a fortune on them, I should imagine. So, Rich, have, you do say Pelican for the uh, for the hard drives and stuff, and that was... Was it a really big one, or was it like a suitcase size one? It was bigger than the one we're looking at in the, in the on the Sonic State website, but... Uh, it was like a big fat suitcase, kind of. You basically cut out the foam to the shapes you need, and we had it set up for these hard drives. And uh, it was a fantastic case. I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Warren Cucurulo used to have this suitcase that was just jammed full of gear, which he used to open up. That was probably a Pelican case, actually, thinking about it. Or maybe it was a Halliburton, I'm not sure. But he just used to open this thing up, and he was up and running within seconds in his hotel room, plug his guitar in and just... He had a DMP7 in it, I think, actually, and loads of uh, guitar effects pedals and stuff. All right. I must have been pretty big those, then. One of those really short guitars. What are they called? Stein. Oh, Steinberg. Or something. Really? What? Uh, the the uh, one without a body. The graphite ones. The little tiny ones that look like yeah. cricket bats. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Don't see many of those now. No. I got a press release through to um, to the news at Sonic State, which is our kind of news desk address, and it was that Personas are opening a web store. You know, it's kind of like, on first kind of inspection, it doesn't really seem like much, but then when you think, think about it, actually, it could be quite a big deal. Because um, if, obviously, if all the manufacturers open their own web stores, then it's going to affect the kind of distribution chain and the, the smaller shops that stock their stuff, because if we can get it online, then why would you necessarily go to the store? And... Um, so if you go to webstore.presonus.com, um, you can see, you know, you can buy all their products. I think it's only for the US at the moment. I mean, they're not running an international store, but it looks like they've got pretty much all their products up there. Um, do you think this is a good thing, anybody? What's it going to mean? I got a little sidetracked in their store, actually, so I don't know that I'm going to answer your question at all. But what I found, and which I thought was fantastic, was the Computer Recording for Worship DVD which is a DVD that uh, teaches you how to record a professional broadcast quality recording without breaking your church budget. Ah, well, it's a big market, very big market in the States, isn't it? Um, well, they, yeah, there is, huge. but I guess that's a slight aside, really. Mm. And it didn't answer your question. Nick, I'm trying to understand what's new or different about this. In other words, we've all been buying products online for years. So is it that they've stopped selling apart from this? No, it's that the actual manufacturer themselves are selling rather than it being, you know, just a... Well, it's always... I mean, I think you could have bought it from them last year, too. Maybe I'm wrong. And you can certainly... I think you can buy Apogee stuff from Apogee. Maybe you got to go through a dealer now that I'm thinking about it. Often you do, but I mean, I think, you know, is it a, it's a trend that is going to result in something else happening. I mean, whether it's going to mean, you know, if the manufacturers all start saying, well, I'll buy my stuff, buy, my, buy our stuff through us rather than anybody else. I mean, are they kind of gearing up to cut costs? I mean, what, what does it mean for the end user, I guess? Well, if I call my local discount house and price one of the products that they've advertised on this website, I wonder what the relative pricing structure will be. I'm betting it's more expensive to buy it directly from them well you might be right i mean or or any other manufacturer i mean it wouldn't wouldn't make sense for them to undercut the stock that they've already got out there because that would kind of be screwy right but if they're not ma- if they're not matching the price then that would be kind of weird what's the point 
Don't DigiDesign do this? You can buy their stuff online, can't you? Yeah. The software you can buy. Not about. Not sure about the hardware, though. Uh, pretty sure you can get into the Digi... I haven't checked the Digi store for hardware, but I can. It probably depends on, on the territory, I'd imagine. I know, Dave, I mean, this is, you know, you make stuff, so it's going to kind of... Does it does it have an effect? I mean, would you rather be just selling your stuff via your own store storefront than kind of dealing with the distributors, or would do you think it's a bad thing? I don't know. Is the honest answer? Um, it's it's all a bit up in the air at the minute. I think the problem you've got with stores, is, uh, and I know this particularly in the US from places like Guitar Center and stuff, is that you've got such a high turnover of staff. That the knowledge base, you know, on the shop floor actually isn't that fantastic, depending... I mean, obviously, you know, there are loads of exceptions, and I'm not trying to kind of say that everyone who works in the store isn't particularly knowledgeable. That's not the case. But, you know, it's so up and down that sometimes, actually, if you handle it direct, you know full well that you're giving the correct answers to the questions and, you know, your distribution. You can kind of keep an eye on things. But it's quite interesting, particularly... I mean, I don't know whether you know that Sound Control, um, I think it's Arbiters have actually bought um, several of the Sound Control branches. Right, and they were, the, they were the UK retailer chain that just recently announced bankruptcy, right? Yeah, so you've got a similar thing there, and the Arbiters are a distributor, but now they seem to be getting into retail. So that's quite an interesting thing. But, I mean, you know, you've also got Roland, who've got their kind of planet departments in various stores and stuff like that. So I don't know. I get the feeling that it's just to try and raise the level of expertise for the for the customer. But how, I mean, how is that going to be serviced through a web storefront? Because, I mean, you're not getting, you know, where are you getting that kind of, hello, can I help you? What is it that you want to know from a web store? Unless you've got people online who can do real-time chat with you. Well, there are. I mean, I've um, recently bought stuff from a computer store, you know, computer online retailer in the UK where the chat's in real time. I mean, and that's been amazing. You know, can I buy this drive? Have you got it in stock? Will it work with this? Yep, fine. Okay, order. That makes sense. I mean, they do that a lot with uh, hosting solutions. If you're going looking for hosting solutions, you know, there's a sort of picture of a, of a happy looking um, telephonist waiting to take your call. In fact, they're not taking your call. They actually just type, you know, how can I help you? But it's, you know, you can get very quickly that sort of real-time aspect is definitely something that you know you you would need i think for web stores to take over the service that real that stores actually do that bricks and mortar do i would think i think the problem with this is i mean if i was buying an a to d converter i'd want to hear it first yeah i find i research stuff that i want to buy and i gather information about it and then i get to a point where i think I need to know more about this. And then I ring a store and then I start chatting to someone in the store and I already know more about it than they do because I've researched it. And that kind of drives me nuts, really, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily talking about music technology stores. I mean, other things as well. It, it, it's a, it's a quite a common uh, um, conversation, isn't it? Does the such and such such do this? Oh, yeah, sure, I think so. Well, does it or doesn't? Um, I don't know. You know, and it's just kind of, oh, right. Okay, well back to the drawing board you know maybe you need both you need bricks and mortar and you need you know you need a web store so people can get to it anytime any place anywhere you know but they can also walk in through the door if they really feel the need yeah both is best but i mean what about the stores that have people like me going in and going oh can i have a look at that please and i poke around at something for you know half an hour and then go and buy it from the internet yeah, well, that's why you need to have both because hopefully that you'll buy it through their internet site. So at least the the time that they've invested in you as a customer is going to pay off. 
but maybe the manufacturer should be taking over the the store aspect of things, or maybe they should be promoting stores or something. I don't know because you have to be able to go and see the stuff somewhere. But there will become a point where stores won't be able to afford to stay open and will disappear, won't they? Well, maybe so. I mean, actually, I mean, thinking about it, if you go to a department store or you know, like Boots the Chemist or whatever, and they all those you have all those kind of makeup. You go to the makeup department, and they're all oh. those little kind of stations. You know, there's the Estee Lauder and the Clinique and the whatever. They're all like mini stores within the store. Presumably they have their own separate kind of brand accounting and effectivity and somebody comes in and sort of gives them the right point of sale bits and bulbs and what have you. So the person is constant throughout that and they're sort of in on the floor within an environment where people can just go and test all this stuff. Do you think, I mean, maybe that's the answer. I mean, and, and as you were saying, Dave, you know, the Planet Roland thing where they have a sort of a, a Roland store within a, a, another store is kind of working towards that kind of model, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. So what we need to be is served with uh, orange-faced ladies in uh, nylon suits. Hey, that works. (laughs) Yeah, but the moment you walk through the door, someone will squirt you with Roland, won't they? (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea of that. Essence of of Roland. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, I have the essence of Yamaha because well, I've got one in the garage. I what could start do, well, up. I suppose that's a, what does Roland yeah. smell like? Oh, or who does Roland smell well, like? Well, yeah, I, I don't know. It's an interesting thought. They'll start bringing out, you know, as they kind of search, ever search for more ways of um, of cashing in on the brand and the the products. Maybe they will all start to bring out kind of aftershave. Well, Key Ferrari chains. have got one, haven't they? Synthesis and and what is it? Ministry of Sound. I'm sure they do. That's a global brand that's just a nightclub isn't it what is that what is this imagine i don't know maybe they don't release a scent but um it'd be funny if they did it would just smell of beer and vomit wouldn't it oh boy, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh boy i'm sorry um perhaps i'll leave that bit out because they might actually release have a scent already but um okay well i think this is this conversation sounds like it's kind of run its course to me. Um, so <laughs> I think at this point, um, it's a good time to say thanks very much for everybody joining us. And uh, Mr. Dave Spears from G4 Software, thanks for coming along. Thank you. And Mr. Rich Hilton, uh, myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. Thank you for joining me this sunny morning, I hope, at your end. Oh, always a pleasure. And yeah, it's beautiful out here. You working later today? You're going to go into the studio and um, wax a hottie? I'm going over right after this. I'm not sure how many hotties I'll be waxing, but we can always hope. Several, several, I hope. And Mr. Mark Tinley, thank you for joining me. And as I said, great to see you in Cambridge at the weekend, finally. Yeah, it was excellent, wasn't it? I liked that. Oh, I'm supposed to say thank you, aren't I? No, oh, yeah, you should. So, well, actually, we now. should both say thank you to, um, to Matrix Synth for buying lunch. Well, I was going to say that. Thank you for buying me lunch. And then I realized you didn't, did you? So thank you to Matrix for buying us lunch. Yeah. <laughs> I bought the beer, but I couldn't eat any more lunch because I had a massive pie for supper the night before and I was still suffering from under its weight. <laughs> Cambridgeshire cows, that's what it was. Probably right. So um, that was Sonic Talk number 91. Um, that's it. It's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.